0: Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders
1: themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by Collective Genius and my friend Jeff Martin. They build high-performing teams for venture-backed growth companies and venture capital firms. Their peak planning operating system helps leadership teams with a three-year vision, one-year plan, quarterly OKRs, and tools to stay on track along the way. I have several friends who have used peak planning very successfully. Message me if you want to talk with Jeff or you want to talk to me about peak planning and how it might work for your firm. I'm super excited to finally have my longtime friend Fred Thiel with me on the podcast today. Before we get to hear from him though, let me tell you a bit about Fred. He is currently the CEO of Marathon Digital Holdings, which is a public company in the digital asset technology space. They mine cryptocurrencies with a focus on the blockchain ecosystem and generating digital assets from it. He is an expert and frequent speaker on the topic, including FinTech, uh, Bitcoin specifically Internet of Things, artificial intelligence and he's been around the VC and private equity community for a long time uh, also was early doing a lot of digital transformation in various companies and industries uh, ahead of most other people which makes him well suited I think for uh, his work in the, the digital asset economy as well. He's been doing this for over 25 years. Uh, he is, led companies across a whole bunch of sectors, as I mentioned, um, including semiconductors, data communications, internet, internet of things, AI, as well as even digital media and software. Uh, I find his breadth of knowledge and experience to just be incredible. And I always enjoy our conversations. We seem to always cover a tremendous amount of ground uh, when we do connect. As a CEO, he's been through virtually every part of a cycle from startup to rapid growth to IPO. He's repositioned companies for high-value exits. He's turned them around. He's led M&A and roll-up strategies as well. Uh, We've known each other almost 20 years, which is remarkable. Uh, We met shortly after I made it to Southern California, and I really appreciate the friendship. It's super exciting to see him at the forefront of the digital asset world, as I said. And Fred, it's great to have you on the show today
0: very great to be here, as always, uh, you know, humbled by this introduction, um, but it's been great to, you know, be a close friend of yours for years and look forward to our conversation today.
1: Likewise. Well, let's start with this somewhat new opportunity. Uh, you've been involved with Marathon for a while, uh, as you said, but recently stepped into the CEO role. So tell me the story, what, what led you to Marathon and uh, where you are right now?
0: So uh, about four years ago, a close friend of mine, Mariko Komodo, who I've known for 20 years, um, got involved with Marathon. Marathon originally, or in its prior um, manifestation, was a patent uh, troll, essentially. It was called Marathon Patent Group. Mm. And Marathon owned a variety of patents. Amongst them uh, was a patent around voice assistance on electronic devices, so think Siri, Alexa. Mm -hmm. and um, they had successfully monetized that patent with Apple um, and um, were in the process of prosecuting a patent with uh, Amazon over Alexa. And uh, that cost a lot of money, and uh, the company eventually started running out of money uh, because of the fact that uh, after the Alice decision, which you may or may not be familiar with in 2014, software patents became very hard to prosecute and protect. And you know, patent trolls sitting on a bunch of software patents uh, made it sort of their, the wind went out of their sails when that happened. So uh, Merrick was brought in uh, by the then board to try and the core group of investors to try and figure out what to do with the business. Um, he thought that uh, Bitcoin mining was kind of the right place to go at the time, realized the timing here, this is um, late 2017, just before the crash. Um, and uh, so he's kind of getting his ducks in a row. The crash happens and he realizes that he needs to reconstitute the, um, the board, uh, asked me to join the board and I joined the board in April of 2018. And uh, together we formulated the strategy for uh, taking the company from kind of where it was to where it's going today. And we worked closely uh, throughout that time. Um, Marathon uh, had a number of major kind of milestones along the way, you know, at the time he took over, the company was virtually insolvent, um, had a market cap of around $4 million and uh, a stock price that was, you know, in the uh, cents versus dollars, Mm -hmm. which uh, on the NASDAQ is a risky thing. And so they went through a number of reverse splits. Um, But uh, the company was able to get some note holders to convert uh, into equity Uh, At that point, the company was debt free, then was able to start raising some money. And Merrick who's uh, just an amazing capital raiser, was able to eventually raise over half a billion dollars. um, And over time, using uh, a variety of strategies, both uh, just direct placements, and then what are called ATMs at the money uh, sales, which as a public company, you can do. It's kind of like trading your own stock, only you're only selling it, you're never buying it back. And uh, was able to raise a significant amount of capital that way and then placed what at the time was a uh, kind of a earth shattering order of essentially uh, nearly 100,000 machines from Bitmain to mine Bitcoin. Um, and this is, you know, the market is only just starting to kind of come back here in, uh, you know, we're talking uh, early 2020. Hmm. And um, when Marathon placed those orders, it, w- it was kind of able to get at the front of the line with uh, a huge volume of machines. And then, you know, Bitcoin did what it's done and gone up in price and Marathon was very well positioned uh, to grow and the company started growing very quickly. And um, uh, together with the board, uh, we kind of all realized that it's time to kind of build out the management team uh, Mm -hmm. some more and uh, everybody kind of looked at me and said, well, you're the public company CEO guy, so why don't you jump in (laughs) and and help? And so Merrick rolled up into the executive chairman role and uh, so I'm the CEO today, really primarily focused on, uh, you know, continuing to build out um, the business as we scale from, you know, doing uh, a couple million dollars uh, a month to hundreds of millions of dollars a month and billions of dollars a year over the next few years.
1: Amazing story. Well, thanks for that background. And I think just a great jumping off point for this conversation. So, I mean, first of all, incredible transformation. From where the business was to where it is today. Uh, explain so primarily primary businesses mining Bitcoin today. As you said, you're you're going from a business that today is doing, you know, a couple million dollars a month. Where does it go and how does it generate revenue at the level that you're projecting in your mind?
0: Sure. So actually we do more than a couple million dollars a month mm-hmm. now. Uh, you know, um. Sure. But uh, if you think about it's the world of Bitcoin um, is different than many businesses. Uh, For one thing, you're selling a commodity where there's no product differentiation on purpose. Mm -hmm. A Bitcoin from one vendor is the same as a Bitcoin from another vendor. They're all the same because they're generated by the Bitcoin network itself uh, as a reward for mining, which is what we do, which is essentially we provide the security and assurance in the Bitcoin network that transactions are being properly validated and added to the blockchain. Um, So we provide a service and for that we get paid rewards in Bitcoin and we're also paid transaction fees. Um, That being said, the way the Bitcoin protocol works, only 900 Bitcoin today are minted per day and paid in rewards. So no matter how much mining equipment you put to work, you could never ever get more than 900 Bitcoin a day. That's the max today. Mm -hmm. And every four years, that number is divided by two, is halved. And they call it the halvening. Uh, And the last one was in May uh, of last year. Um, The next one will be in March, estimated to be around March of uh, 2024, when instead of 900 Bitcoin a day, we'll go down to 450 Bitcoin a day. So hopefully the price of Bitcoin will go up to uh, enable that to still be a very viable business, Mm -hmm. um, which we're sure it will be. Uh, Bitcoin is really unique in that, um, not only is it a store of value, but the Bitcoin network really is a financial settlement network. And what you're going to see are going to be uh, banks and large financial institutions essentially doing clearing transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, The Bitcoin blockchain has a huge amount of volume on it from a network effect perspective. It's a hugely diverse and decentralized network, so it's very secure. And it's the perfect technology platform on which to do settlement and to essentially uh, hold ownership of things. Uh, So think NFTs, things like that. Um, They depend on smart contracts, which has been for the longest time, kind of one of the benefits of Ethereum, which Mm -hmm. uh, is not a settlement network. Ethereum is really a technology platform to build other applications on. Mm -hmm. But with the Taproot, Um, addition to Bitcoin and now uh, how the Lightning Network is developed, I think you're going to see a a lot of those smart contract-based systems start shifting over to the Bitcoin um, network. But it's a really interesting business because it's all about fighting over um, how much of the 900 Bitcoin per day you can win. Mm -hmm. And it literally is a contest. You are deploying hardware and solving a mathematical equation and guessing a number. And if you Solve the mathematical equation, guess the right number, then you're awarded that block and you're paid a fee in Bitcoin for winning that plus the transaction fees. So it is a game of massive scale. And, uh, you know, as an example, we're ramping from a handful of miners to over 100,000 miners. Um, And, you know, these aren't inexpensive machines Mm -hmm. over the course of this year. And so our business is growing dramatically and we're going from less than, one percent of the overall global mining capacity uh, to uh, nearly uh, six, seven, eight
1: percent by the uh, early part of next year. So, it's uh, very exciting times, and that will be what ultimately drives most of that revenue growth. Correct. Yeah, okay. and
0: you know, it, if Bitcoin is at you know like today around thirty thousand, um, and if we're mining. Um, you know, 40, 50 Bitcoin a day at 30,000, that would be our
1: daily revenue. Mm-hmm. Do the math. And then are you holding some of those as balance sheet? And then you kind of sell them off as you see the, either the market or um, some sort of regular, or, or are you in also being hired on behalf of others to, to do this?
0: No, actually we, we hold all the Bitcoin that we mine. Mm-hmm. So okay. uh, we have over 5,000 Bitcoin on the balance sheet today and mm-hmm. continue to hold. We've actually gone into the market to buy Bitcoin opportunistically at times. Mm-hmm. Um, we believe that, you know, Bitcoin on our balance sheet is worth more than cash on the balance sheet, sure. uh, at least fiat currency. Um, so it's definitely about walking the talk, if you would.
1: Mm-hmm. So what, what is it about COVID? I mean, this last year and change has just been this amazing time for, I, I almost say like, you know, cryptocurrencies time in the sun and it's the whole array, not just Bitcoin, it's, it is ether and Dogecoin and a whole variety of different cryptocurrencies. I mean, what, as you think back about COVID, what is it about COVID that really brought that to the forefront?
0: You know, I don't think so much uh, COVID per se, where you, you could definitely say that, you know, when it came to, um, you know the shift to work from home; it drove a whole acceleration of digital transformation in businesses. There are mm-hmm. a lot of direct correlations. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the crypto world, um, I think it's just uh, the adoption cycle was doing its thing, and we were okay. moving kind of
1: through the. It hype just cycle happened to be aligned. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Because the um, what ends up happening is whenever there's a great appreciation uh, in the price of a commodity, people mm-hmm. who are invested in that commodity now have excess investment capacity because they have huge profits. So they then look to where else can they invest that? And so as more startups in the crypto world develop, those become very attractive places for people to invest. And you get this run up in asset prices. What the pandemic in general did was people who were asset rich, uh, and cash rich became even better off because they were able to acquire assets that appreciated in price Mm -hmm. and, um, whether those are real estate assets or stocks, bonds, you know, the stock market's been doing very well. So I think whenever an investor feels really confident and has gotten a great return, they're going to start placing bets on other things to diversify. And so Ether started growing uh, alongside Bitcoin. And then, you know, these other meme stocks, um, you get a lot of retail traders. And, you know, a lot of the crypto uh, currency trading that's done uh, on exchanges is retail buyers and sellers, people like you and me who go into the market, they take some of their savings and buy some Bitcoin, buy some Ether, Um, they maybe do some Uniswap, they do some other things. Um, And you know, it's a very volatile market. Um, And more and more institutional buyers are now coming into the Bitcoin specific uh, cryptocurrency market. And that'll create more stability in the price over time as that Bitcoin is essentially held via ETFs and other funds. Mm -hmm. Um, But you just have this dynamic of, it became, it's kind of like in the startup world. You know, when I remember back here in Orange County, when Broadcom went public in the mid to late 90s, um, all of a sudden it was like this, uh, the the Ferrari and Mercedes dealerships were Mm -hmm. putting cards on all the cars in the parking lot outside Broadcom's office. And my office was across the street at the time. And it was like, you know, all these newly wealthy, newly minted millionaires. Um, and so, you know, when you have that kind of uh, beneficial event in your financial life, you look to invest it in other things. And I think that's it's created a whole industry, just like the startup industry, sure. you know, Silicon Valley and Orange County. And, and, and you know, as you and I've talked a lot, uh, you know, in our Octane days about this, uh, it's this uh,
1: virtuous cycle. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, when you see somebody like Coinbase having 50 million plus accounts, it has to be individuals, retail, you know, it, it just to get to that scale, um, there aren't enough institutions anywhere near that, right? So it is remarkable to see the participation that this has enabled globally.
0: Yeah. And what's interesting about So Coinbase realized that 80% of the volume that's traded on Coinbase is actually institutional, which tells you how small the average transaction for a retail buyer is. Um, But the blockchain is this completely transparent world. Um, I know exactly when a deal happens, I can go look and see from what wallet did that transaction go uh, from and to whom did it go? And if I can infer enough about who owns those wallets, I can see movements. And so there are these great tools out there that let you see, is this retail buying and selling that's going on? Is it institutional? Mm-hmm. What sort of volumes are moving onto exchanges versus from cold storage and what type of transactions are moving off exchanges? And you can infer from that different things. And so it's there's much more transparency than even the stock market um, today, which uh, if you think about it, a lot of the trading on the stock market is done in dark
1: pools, which yes. isn't ever exposed, right? And not very transparent. I mean, I yeah. would say if anything, that that marketplace has gone in the other direction. Yes, yep,
0: absolutely. But so, it, it's, an, it's an exciting world and uh, you know, there's a lot of dynamic stuff going on and it is a, an industry and a business where uh, it's perfectly suited to work from home. I mean, Marathon, uh, our whole organization works remotely, always has, always will, mm-hmm. uh, it seems. And we're very small, we're really six, seven people
1: today, that's it. Amazing. So a couple, couple other topics. Um, you know, one thing that has been at least somewhat out there in, in recent days has been how much energy is required to mine Bitcoin. And there've been some criticism of that as a drain. So share sort of the perspective that you have on, on the energy relatedness to, to this.
0: Sure. Yeah. This is, um, (laughs) the primary topic that most people ask me about. Um, so, Uh, Yes, Bitcoin uses a lot of electricity. Um, If you look at where we source that electricity from as an industry, um, excluding China for a minute, uh, predominantly in the Western world, um, Bitcoin miners are the buyer of last resort for electricity, meaning we're cheapskates. Mm -hmm. We want to buy the cheapest electricity. What does that mean? Well, it means we're buying excess um, capacity. The electrical industry for example. In the US, uh, we generate four terawatts of electricity daily and consume it or lose it. Uh, You can't store that energy anywhere today yet very efficiently. And so, um, if you think about uh, electricity, you have to generate it somewhere, then you have to distribute it to where the consumer is, where they can consume it. That distribution phase, if you would, alone loses somewhere between 5 to 8% of the power that's generated in the U.S. So upwards of 200 gigawatts of electricity is just wasted simply by transmitting it Mm -hmm. down the line and Mm -hmm. it it disappears through heat and other things. Um, You look at a large Bitcoin miner like ourselves and you look at all of the North American miners put together and we most probably all together consume less than 200 gigawatts of electricity. So the equivalent of the energy that's wasted is kind of what we would consume. Most Bitcoin miners actually um, are located on or near power generation facilities. And that means we're a baseload customer. So if you think about the way the grid operates, the grid has to generate enough electricity to meet peak demand, because let's face it, if it's a sunny afternoon, it's warm out, when you get home, you wanna turn on your air conditioning, you want your TV to work, you want your oven to work, et cetera. Um, When it doesn't work, you get irritated. So the electrical grid is designed around providing peak capacity. The problem is that um, load varies, right? During the yep. day, load varies, yet you're having to be produce enough to meet that load and any excesses. And so you have this need to turn on and off power, which is very difficult for the grid to do. And so they just generate it and they, they lose a lot of it. So by having Bitcoin miners uh, either on the grid or near or on power plant grounds as base load clients, We can consume and suck up that excess energy Um, and it provides a better ROI for the energy company because they now have a balanced load uh, Mm -hmm. that they're uh, generating for and uh, you know the great thing about bitcoin miners is a bitcoin miner can be shut off or turned on for a demand response mechanism very easily it's not like a steel plant or it's not like a bottling facility or factory that's hard to shut down or, you know, a couple hours because uh, it happens to be late afternoon, it's very hot out and, you know, the grid needs electricity for the air conditioning systems.
1: I haven't so, asked you this, have have any energy companies invested in or developed their own mining capability? Absolutely.
0: The one of the single yeah. largest growing groups of miners today are power companies who have realized, "Oh mm-hmm. wow, this is a great way for me to generate extra revenue. I sure. can mine bitcoin and then when the grid needs my electricity, I just turn off my miners and mm-hmm. pump the electricity out to the grid and so they can optimize the yield on their return on assets, which is totally huge. Makes you know, sense. Yeah. Think about and especially when you think about renewable energy, this is a huge issue. So, you know, we you know, our stated objective is to be 100% carbon neutral by the end of next year, Uh, the 70,000 machines will roll out in the second half of this year and into early next year will all be on carbon neutral energy sources. Mm -hmm. And the balance of our uh, power will shift to uh, carbon neutral uh, over the course of next year. So we'll be 100% carbon neutral from an energy consumption perspective. But if you're a solar uh, producer, a wind farm, or hydro, Um, You know, you're generating electricity and you have nowhere to put it typically uh, other than um, when the grid consumes it. And um, so we're the perfect client uh, or partner, if you would, for those uh, types Mm -hmm. of businesses, because uh, especially with solar farms, you know, the big issue is you need a lot of land. um, You build a solar farm. Well, you've got to get somebody to run power lines from the solar farm to where the consumers are. Mm -hmm. And the grid's not going to invest in that unless the solar farm is built. So it's a chicken or egg thing. Sure. And by then putting Bitcoin miners on the solar farm, you can generate income while you're waiting for the grid to catch up to you, so to say.
1: Amazing. So let's, let's shift a little bit. Um, you, we talked a little bit about some of the other cryptocurrencies beyond Bitcoin. How, how do you think about interoperability? in the? I mean, there'll they'll be winners and losers like a lot of things, right? We, we certainly know that. I mean, you know, if you think about fiat, fiat currencies and countries that are winners and losers for sure, um, but how do you think about, I mean, it, I don't see it being a single global, in my mind, single global uh, blockchain, but h- how do you think about that? From where you um, sit?
0: Well, I, I think there are going to be tons of different blockchains <clears throat> for different uses. Um, and then you have to think about um, that you have multiple layers in the technology stack. So. Bitcoin network is a layer one network, it's a base Mm -hmm. network, Mm -hmm. just like Ethereum is. On top of that, you then build applications, layer two um, protocols, like lightning in the world of Bitcoin. uh, And in the world of um, Ethereum, you're building ERC20 tokens, essentially, um, that then create uh, ways for you to do things. So the difference between the Bitcoin blockchain and the Ethereum blockchain is uh, property versus utility. Uh, Bitcoin is about property. Who owns what? Uh, it's the best technology and network for tracking ownership of an asset and the settlement of transactions around ownership of an asset. So think of it as everything from kind of the equivalent of a letter of credit to a uh, title uh, on a house, on a boat, on a plane, uh, car, whatever it might be, artwork, anything. Could be fractionalization, ownership of stocks or bonds, things like that. The Uh, Ethereum network is about utility. So that is about being able to deposit Bitcoin, uh, do yield farming on that, and then um, generating income. uh, And you're doing that by wrapping uh, this uh, Bitcoin uh, in a um, smart contract on the Ethereum network, uh, such that you can track exactly what's going on with that. A lot of the BlockFi or DeFi type um, businesses are built on the Ethereum network because of the nature of smart contracts and the ability to kind of have an automatic clearing, if you would of a transaction such that when a certain set of conditions occur, um, a payment will be then completed. And so um, that's kind of the nature of those two different networks, then Cardano and these other networks are competing against similar use cases to Ethereum, uh, Mm -hmm. more so than uh, Bitcoin. And I think as you look into the future. And granted, I I have a bias towards Bitcoin uh, being in the mining industry of Bitcoin. But um, I think back to the times of the early age of the internet when TCPIP was kind of establishing itself as the protocol. Um, There were lots of other attempts to do things, and TCPIP ended up winning out. Was it the best protocol? Maybe not. Um, But it was the one that became the most predominant one and it had the, the kind of the network effect and I think the Bitcoin blockchain has that network effect going for it today, uh, where there are just so many millions of nodes on the network that it becomes more and more valuable. Um, the fact that El Salvador has uh, essentially uh, passed legislation approving Bitcoin as legal tender means that uh, there will be lots of people in the country who will be using Bitcoin as a form of remittance mm-hmm. or sending money um back to their families. And El Salvador's economy, 20% of GDP is just remittances from outside of the country of citizens who are working outside of the country and sending money home to their families. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as more and more um, uh, underdeveloped nations uh, start moving towards Bitcoin because their own currency either has uh, issues uh, due to inflation or other things like that, um, or they're a dollarized economy, as many countries like Nigeria, El Salvador, and others are. Um, it, Bitcoin's a perfect settlement network for those transactions. On the corporate level, I think you'll see banks doing settlement between each other using the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, so you won't see you know, <clears throat> small transactions for you know, renting a movie, buying a hamburger, things like that necessarily, but what you will see is um, people using it as a store of value and then for settling transactions internationally or even domestically.
1: Very interesting, and that, I think that helps Uh, sort of show where you're you're thinking is as where things are moving ahead in, in the coming years is there a secondary equivalent in your mind to bitcoin i'll call it the the silver to the bitcoin gold that you're paying attention to that maybe you're even thinking about maybe we should start dipping our toe in
0: um you know to be fair um I think there are some promising projects out there, but it, it really comes down to scale. Um, mm-hmm. Are there better social networks than Facebook out there? Sure. Are there better search engines than Google out there? Sure. But the fact of the matter is, um, you know, to displace Google, you would have to be at least 10 times better. Sure. Uh, to displace Facebook, you have to be at least 10 times better. And, uh, you know, and that's standard metric in the, in the venture world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 10 times better or 10 times lower in price. And I haven't yet found something that has as much promise um, that you could say this is 10 times better than Bitcoin. Um, And again, it gets down to the fact that, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain is one of the most secure blockchains out there. Microsoft is building their identity management platform on the Bitcoin blockchain instead of on Ethereum. And, um, you know, if you do some research into Ethereum, you'll see, um, you know, it is, not a decentralized network so much as it's very centrally controlled. There's a handful of people that determine when forks happen, how things happen. That doesn't exist in the Bitcoin world. Um, It takes 90% of the participants for anything to happen, as could be seen with this taproot um, addition that's happening to Bitcoin right now. So, the Ethereum world is uh, a little bit more of a world where there's a lot of continual development going on, Um, you know, people are constantly out there breaking things, if you would. And, um, you know, you read stories about, okay, well, this particular DeFi application just had $30 million that got stolen or something. Mm -hmm. And so the security level isn't quite there yet. And I think that's the challenge. It's like, you know, here we are, it is 2021 the SWIFT monetary transmitting system yeah. was developed in the early 70s to be used primarily on telexes, right? It's text-based, mm-hmm. you know, please mm-hmm. send da 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 you know, The fact that it still
1: exists today... shocking, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's shocking, right? Yes.
0: And it's only now, the, you know, the Fed is going to change it. So, you know, the financial markets and um, uh, are A, highly regulated, and B, mm-hmm. very skeptical. And so you really need to provide comfort that is safe, it's secure, it's transparent, and bad things aren't going to happen mm-hmm. um, for it to kind of uh, get good steam. And I think Bitcoin has proven that. The amount of institutional interest in Bitcoin today and the number of applications that are being built on the Bitcoin network and the fact that companies are willing to hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet says
1: a lot. Oh, absolutely. Well, great intro and I think perspective on uh, on crypto and blockchain for, you know, a lot of my audience that I think has a, a wide variety of experience with it from a lot to very, very little. So thank you for that. Let's let's go a little bit back. Uh, you know, you've been in and around technology. I talked about all the different industries that you've participated in throughout your career. As, as you think about that at the core, I mean, what is it about new emerging technologies that really captivates you?
0: Um, you Yeah, great question. At heart, I think I'm a futurist. Mm. Um, I have a, uh, I guess, a a skill, if you would, uh, or a talent at um, looking at a technology and figuring out interesting ways that it could be used for the benefit of society, uh, or for businesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you go back to, uh, back in the day uh, when I was CEO of Lantronics you know we took that company and shifted from providing IT equipment into all of a sudden enabling the whole internet of things granted we thought that you would have uh, IoT enabled vending machines and uh, devices all over the place within five years it's taken mm-hmm. a lot longer than that mm-hmm. um,
1: still but, not in that cases,
0: right. but now you know most people understand yes. the value of it and how it works and so Um, And, you know, I've kind of done this repeatedly across some industries and it's just, I think I'm a futurist at heart. I Mm -hmm. uh, loved science fiction as a kid. And um, I think technology is one of the biggest enablers of value creation that exists today. Just look at the sheer value of digital transformation and Mm -hmm. what it's doing to companies. You know, McKenzie has done reports that companies that go through digital transformation and are technology first Companies, no matter what industry they're in, tend to have profits that are 25% higher than companies that don't do it. That says a lot. And if you prescribe to the, um, the form, you know, the Jack Welch uh, comment about, you know, if the rate of change inside your business is slower than the rate of change outside your business, you know, you're going to go out of business, uh, then, you know, you need to be digitally transforming your business. Uh, Consumers, especially with the pandemic now, you know, they 70 to 80% of the buying decision is done without ever interacting with the company through websites, social media, <laughs> referrals, et cetera. Um, purchasing is all done through electronic means today. You know, even in the M&A world and you know, I've been in the PE world and VC world for a long time. Yeah. You know, I see groups closing transactions with very little in-person interaction at all. It's all done through Zoom and and diligence tools and so Technology is you know, accelerating our ability to get more done. I think we're going to see huge gains in productivity with the whole work from home thing. Um, part of that is people working more hours, obviously. Um, but part of it is just, hey, I don't have to be on an airplane five hours to go do a meeting where I could do that over Zoom instead. And so protection. what can I do with the rest of that time? So I, I think technology is um, going to be a huge value creator going forward. Um, and I wouldn't surprise me to see companies that really are 100% software, like they mm-hmm. call them DAOs in the sure. crypto world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I see that happening very soon.
1: So that good good uh, sort of transition to the next, I mean, we've both been at this for a long time. And, you know, the the comment, you know, the rate of change as you were talking about with Jack Welch or, you know, Mark Andreessen, you know, comment about software eating the world. And I think it's from one perspective, it's it's sort of that feeling of, It's eaten everything, but I know you probably share the similar view I do, which is it hasn't. It's almost just barely begun. I mean, you talk about the idea of a software, entirely software-driven company. We we haven't really seen that fully yet, but I think it it is to your point. It's on the horizon. But as you think about that, like, how do you keep yourself relevant and fresh?
0: Wow. Um, Reading a lot talking to people a lot, uh, being out there. It's so easy to fall into kind of an ivory tower mm-hmm. syndrome, uh, in this space. Um, especially if you're kind of at the leading edge because you can get a little bit kind of full of yourself. In yes. your opinions. Um, but I think it's really just talking to a lot of people, reading a lot, understanding people's perspectives. Um, I'm a big subscriber to the, um, lean methodology, um, not sure. just lean entrepreneur, but just lean generally in running a company in this constantly evolving, constantly learning organization. And so I always am a big believer, you know, whenever you have any assumption you're getting ready to make or any hypothesis you have, go out and test it. Just talk to people, get feedback, because um, though you may have a great vision, the marketplace isn't ready for that vision possibly. And there are kind of baby steps that have to be taken to build confidence in a vision before you can execute it. You know, Apple is famously expert at um, dabbling in a technology and waiting for a market to develop to the point where as a multi-billion dollar company, they're able to take advantage of it. You know, it makes no sense for Apple to go into a market that's a hundred million dollar market. sure. Um, right? But if it's a five to $10 billion market and they can get 20% market share possibly. You know, look at what they've done in smartwatches, mm-hmm. smartphones. It's
1: incredible. That's right.
0: Absolutely incredible what they do. And um, I, I think, you know, part of it is that it, it's the being able to understand when a market is ready. Uh, you know, uh, Facebook wasn't the first social media uh, network. Uh, Google wasn't the first um, search engine. But they developed a key amount of relevance at the right time on the backs of the pioneers who went before them. And I think mm-hmm. every industry is like that. Um, with technology adoption. And you know, you've got the early adopters, you know, the proverbial Jeff Moore, um, crossing the chasm Mm -hmm. curve. where you've got the early adopters who are testing things that, you know, don't really work 100% and are very customized. Uh, And then you have the late adopters who are only now starting to use, you know, Facebook advertising, Mm -hmm. for example, you know, look at the the yoga studio that pre-pandemic maybe had a website, was limited by the number of physical spaces in its classrooms, the number of teachers it had, and uh, its kind of prox- geographic proximity to their clients for convenience. And look, post-pandemic, those same yoga instructors now do classes online where they have subscribers from all over the world, and they're right. able to not have that capacity constraint anymore. That is happening still now across all sorts of industries that are being disrupted by this technology wave. And yes, there were a lot of early adopters. And, you know, we who operate in the industry think, Oh, wow, yeah, that's passe at this point. It's not.
1: It's the long tail is a very long tail. That's right. So good. Let's, let's get a little bit of uh, Fred advice. So you're new and starting your career. I think you, you probably would agree with me that the rate of change is not slowing down or even stay steady it's increasing technology actually increases that rate so i'm i'm newly starting my career how do you advise me on how to how to even think about what i'm going to be doing for the next 40 years um
0: it's a tough question so mm-hmm. if i look back at kind of when i got started in the industry i was a software engineer being paid by a bank to develop software when I was in high school. So uh, I was a little jaded in that uh, I kind of was already in the tech industry at an early age. Um, But my advice, uh, and I teach at uh, the Marshall School at USC as a guest lecturer um, a few times a year. And what I always tell the students there is, look at how and where you can add value, where you can add value is what's going to generate value in your career. So if you have a talent and skill for design, then look at ways that the designs that you make can add value to companies or people's lives. Um, If you are really good at, uh, if you have a penchant for analytics and analysis, well, then maybe you should do something around financial uh, instruments or the financial world where you can add value, or maybe it's data mining. Uh, What's really great today is that technology is enabling a whole new set of industries around mm-hmm. data science, for example, uh, just you know, the fact that we have this huge volume of data of very high resolution data that's generated by all sorts of applications and sensors and things, that alone providing the analysis and insights granted leveraging AI and other tools, um, you know, people can add huge amounts of value to businesses. And so I think it's really find a way where you can have the intersection of your passion, and kind of what's happening in an industry. So that at the, at the nexus of those two, uh, the confluence of those two things, you're generating huge value for somebody. And that's going to generate, um, not just, it's going to help your career enormously, but if you can create a lot of value for people, people will pay you a lot of money. And Mm so, um, I always recommend people focus on where and how you can add value.
1: Great advice. Great advice. I've got a lot of entrepreneurs kind of leads to the potential to take that uh, value capability and turn it into your own business potentially so i've got a lot of entrepreneurs in my audience how do you think about the current state of entrepreneurship because i think there's there's different ways you could look at it in this current environment
0: well i think the barrier to entry to being an entrepreneur um, at least in the tech business has come down immensely you know go mm-hmm. back to 1995, uh, when the internet was young, if you wanted to build a website and God forbid, sell something on that website, you had to go buy Unix servers for Mm -hmm. your son, you had to go write a lot of software. (laughs) It was multi-millions of dollars before you could even turn the key. Uh, Today, you go to uh, Squarespace, Shopify, whatever website, Mm -hmm. and you're in business in all of 10 minutes. So the barrier to entry has come down. Um, the tools for marketing have become hugely inexpensive. And you know, with Facebook, you can target down to um, you know really fine set of metrics and very inexpensively market and promote your brand uh, and test even more. Mm-hmm. So there's so much infrastructure out there that it really is easy to build businesses. And it's more about having clarity. You know, entrepreneurship today is about having real clarity about what you're trying to do Understanding your customer value proposition and testing it and getting that tuned to the point where when you do start investing in the business uh, and building stuff, you know you're on the right track already. And it's this constant process of, you know, make an assumption, put something out there, get some feedback, make an assumption, put something out there, get some feedback, and iterate your way and realize that, you know, the market. Uh, needs to be educated, needs to learn about what you're doing, and that takes time. There's a certain amount of just inertia um, and resistance you have to kind of push through to get the word out there. So um, you got to be really realistic about uh, your plans. You know, people, uh, some people think that, oh, I just have to put a website up and I'm going to be mm-hmm. printing money. Um, you know, it's a lot harder than that. Absolutely. But that being said, um, the, the cost to start a business it has essentially disappeared right? You can run a side business side gig very easily these days on the That's internet. Right. Um, and, you know, just look at all the money people make by doing YouTube courses and YouTube videos. And, um, you know, it's just a huge, uh, huge opportunity for people to uh, start small businesses today.
1: So you, you talked earlier about you you tend to look ahead, you like to see what's coming up in the future. Are there any areas that you would encourage entrepreneurs to really pay attention to?
0: Well, I would definitely say um, you know artificial intelligence is a huge area. Uh, we are still way, way, way early. We're in nineteen ninety five internet days uh, mm-hmm. of the use of AI today um, and we have made leaps and bounds forward over the past five years um, and over the past decade and you know, AI' has been around for a lot longer than that. Uh, yes you know, let's face it, the video phone was a re- launched at the World's Fair in nineteen sixty four and Didn't really become popular until we started having smartphones. Um, So there are infrastructure and technology pieces that have to come into play. But we're getting to a place with AI where you will soon have marketplaces where you can rent a model as a service. I want an AI model to calculate, um, you know, a a turbine's uh, uh, friction and temperature changes that'll predict a a failure. I want. to rent a model for analyzing Bitcoin price fluctuations, for example, and predicting where Bitcoin is going to be priced. You have data as a service where I need to rent data to build a model or validate a model. You have AI processors available on call through AWS and other hosting facilities where you can literally rent AI capacity um, on an hour by hour basis. So that's an area where I think you're going to see a huge explosion in businesses around all of the services related to to AI, because you don't need to build everything from scratch in that mm. business today. So just like the whole website hosting business developed uh, along with the internet, I think you're going to see that in AI. The other area is blockchain, um, and here I'll kind of you know put the uh, the, the kind of uh, big change is that if you think about what happened with cloud computing, we went from hosting applications and data in our own data centers to putting them out in somebody else's data center. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Amazon and uh, you know Microsoft Azure and other services like that, we now have the ability to, at the click of a mouse button, instantiate new servers, grow capacity, do whatever we want. And they have a lot of tools that make it very easy for us to manage uh, these uh, applications and um, essentially our outsource data center. Um, However, with cloud computing, companies like Salesforce, Oracle, you know, NetSuite and others, um, they are effectively just taking what would normally have run in our data center and they're running it in their data center. And with the kind of value that they provide being, we'll take managing all these IT assets and these applications and data off your hands, you just need to use it and uh, pay us a monthly fee, which was great. Fabulous business model, fabulous practical solution for companies. What's interesting is that as you now move forward with the blockchain, you could take all your data, put it on the blockchain, and now you could use multiple applications to access that data and create value from that data, and your data is not being held hostage by the SaaS company. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is the kind of final death of a thousand cuts to people like SAP, where you pay tens of millions of dollars to implement it, you pay tens of millions of dollars in licenses, and the cost of switching away from it is huge. Um, and because of that, they don't have a huge incentive to continually improve the product and make it better because they earn more money by not investing more in R&D. Sure. I'm not saying they don't do that, but the biggest fear that SAP has is that somebody is going to come up with a better user interface um, to put on the front of SAP and then disintermediate all of the back end through thousands of small apps and best-in-class services. It's kind of like, um, you know, I need a uh, manufacturing uh erp system well depending on the industry i'm in there are a variety of different manufacturing platforms that are better than others Mm -hmm. and i think what you're going to find is eventually you know my crm data is going to be on the blockchain fully tokenized and you know part of my team is going to use hubspot because they're top of funnel people Uh, my sales team that does strategic sales is going to use salesforce possibly and then you know the finance team is going to use something else because you know possibly sap or something all on that same set of data. Mm. Where today, if you wanted to do that, it would require APIs and all sorts of complex things. I think all our data will be on the blockchain. Data ownership will revert to companies and to individuals who will control it. And it will change the economics in the business substantially. But that's 10 years off, I think.
1: Fascinating, fascinating. And thank you for sharing that. I think there's a lot to investigate for really creative entrepreneurs in that. So thank you. Well, we're coming up on time and I could stay on here all day with you, as I'm sure you know. What are you most excited about? The world's kind of coming back to being able to get back together in person. We haven't had coffee together in person in quite a while. But as as we start to get back together again, what are you most excited about?
0: So I think the ability for people to um, get out of their heads a little bit. And talk to other people. You know, the pandemic um, actually accelerated in this country a polarization that I mm-hmm. think is very dangerous to society, because um, because of the benefit of the internet, you can choose what news sources and information sources you want to listen to. And if you're a believer in um, you know the social dilemma uh, hypothesis that you know the social media sites will feed you more of what you. Mm-hmm. Need to read to keep you engaged, then um, the fact that going out and spending time with actual people gives you a chance to actually have conversations where you exchange ideas and can become more of a critical thinker because you're going to be exposed to alternate views on things. And I think this is a huge and very important thing that society needs to really adopt again, which is this becoming critical thinkers. There are so many people who adopt ideas that any rational individual would say, this is ludicrous. Um, and and you know, as simple as the, uh, and you know, I'm not gonna you know, go into any religious conversation, but you know there are people today who still believe the world is flat. Mm-hmm. There are people who believe that vaccinations are bad for you. Those are all fine beliefs to have. But the point of the fact is you can silo yourself and isolate yourself in a world where you only interact with people who think that way online, um, and you can go down that rabbit hole. Or you can spend time out in society um, with people who have different backgrounds and see, get exposed to different ideas and understand that maybe those ideas aren't really quite as realistic as one originally thought. Um, And there might be value to looking at the other side of the argument. And um, so I I think we're in uh, urgent need of more critical thinking in society today. And I think the younger generations are really driving, um, they have more power today to have their voices heard and they have more power today to um, do things with their voices. The whole meme issue in stocks and what happened with GameStop, uh, all Mm -hmm. all of the cancel culture, you know, that's real. And people need to wake up to the fact that, um, you know, there is a portion of society that will vote with their dollars and vote with their feet. And, you know, there are a plethora of choices out there today, and it's easy to create new choices. And companies need to realize that um, it's very easy to lose market share um, if you do the wrong things.
1: Spoken like a true futurist. Fred, thank you so much for joining me and sharing all this perspective and wisdom. As expected, we covered a lot of ground and we could cover a lot more. We're going to have to do this again in the not too distant future for sure. I'm super excited for you and this uh, new role or newish role at, at Marathon and look forward to, to really tracking your progress in the, in the coming months. Great to finally have you on the show. Um, super fun conversation as I knew it would be.
0: Terry, okay. right. Thank you so much. Really appreciate being on and look forward to continuing the conversation over
1: coffee in person very soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.